Amen. So as I mentioned, Revelation 9 is one of the scariest chapters in the Bible. I was reading a commentary by James Hamilton, and he reminded the reader of these, uh, this uh, content from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Perhaps the most terrifying enemies there are the fell riders out of Minas Morgul. They're called the Black Riders or the Nazgul. Former kings who were once noble but now are the living dead. They ride huge dragon-like beasts. Consider this description of these frightful enemies in the, the, uh, the book and then the movie Return of the King. The Nazgul came again and as their dark lord now grew and put forth his strength, so their voices which uttered his will and his malice were filled with evil and horror. Ever they circled the city like vultures that expect their full of doomed men's flesh. Out of sight and shot they flew, yet they were ever present. And their deadly voices rent the air with piercing screams. Um, some of you have seen the movie Return of the King. We'll never forget the shrieking of the sound of these terrible creatures. There's a picture of one of them behind me. If you go on, Terry, and show a couple others. For those of you who have seen the movie, uh, they're just a frightful type of creature. They fly in the air. They, there seems to be really no way to deal with them. And as they do, they shriek and they make this terrible sound. And it goes on to say, More unbearable they become, not less, at each new cry. At length, even the stout-hearted would fling themselves to the ground as the hidden menace passed over them. Or they would stand, letting their weapons fall from uh, nerveless hands while into their minds blackness came. And they thought no more of war, but only of hiding and of crawling and of death, close quote. That's what J.R.R. Tolkien painted for us in the Lord of the Rings series. Tolkien's books and his own influence on C.S. Lewis actually brought about the conversion of who C.S. Lewis, who was probably the greatest apologist perhaps that the Christian church has ever known. And C.S. Lewis said that he was dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. He had been an atheist, but he was confronted with the evidence for the God of the Bible, the evidence for the resurrection and so forth. And he had a brilliant mind and he was convinced that the Bible was divine and not human in origin. I think all of us would wonder, you know, as we read Revelation 9 and we, we have seen a promise that when you read the book of Revelation, there's a blessing attached to the book. But many of us would ask, when we look at the darker chapters of the book of Revelation, what blessing can one glean out of these chapters? What are we supposed to learn as believers? The room is filled with believers tonight. Many of the people who will listen to this message later will be believers. What are we to glean from this revelation? What are we to know and understand about the world? One thing that we're to know and understand is that evil will be dealt with one day. It will be dealt with by God. In fact, he has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. And it is a terrible and frightful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And though we don't want to talk about the wrath of God much in the church anymore, and we want to paint, you know, rosy pictures of everything being fine, we know deep down that everything's not fine. I'm sure you've looked around. I'm sure you've looked within. And when we do those things, we find that everything's not fine with mankind. The world has fallen. The world is under a curse. 
And if the world continues to shake its fist at God, God will not be mocked. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked, Galatians 6, 7. Whatever a man sows to, that he will also reap. Peter says, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things remain as they were from the beginning of creation. But Peter says, they are literally, you could put the language this way, stupid on purpose. I don't know if you know any people like that. Stupid on purpose. Perhaps nobody wants to be stupid on purpose, but some people just are. And it escapes their notice that God has been involved radically in his creation. Cataclysmically, you could say he made the world in power and authority, he told the sea, you can only go that far, stop. He created all the different elements of life on the planet, the diversity of species, the oceans, the moon, the sun, the stars. He is a powerful, majestic creator. Yet man, for being made in the image of God, has spent much of his existence defying God and even mocking God and done something that seems so tragic and so silly, but man has done this throughout his history, turned to idolatry. Man over and over again turns to things made with stone and wood and things that God made, but things that cannot produce anything. In fact, at the end of this chapter, we're going to see that after mankind gets these fifth and sixth trumpet blasts, men will not repent of their idolatry. They will not turn. And this is reminiscent of what happened in the Exodus when Pharaoh got plague after plague from the hand of God. He could not deny it was the hand of God. And some of, in some of the instances, he was actually you know, saying, I'm sorry, go pray for me. I've sinned and whatever. But then what happened to Pharaoh's heart? His heart grew harder and harder and harder. That's the way this chapter depicts what will happen in these days. Men, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.10 says, would not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And so they have to deal with the wrath of God. The fifth angel sounds in Revelation 9.1. And if I haven't prayed, I'll pray right now. Father, just bless our time. Open our hearts and minds to your word in Jesus' name. The fifth angel sounded, Revelation 9-1, and I saw a star from heaven as John now describes what he sees, which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Now we've seen in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, uh, we've seen in Job 38, we see in other places like Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, that stars are sometimes angels. And so notice the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven, which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. So the star is a hymn. There's a personal description here of a hymn. And when you think of one falling, so this one has fallen from heaven, and he's given the key to the pot bottomless pit. Who holds the keys of death in Hades, according to Revelation 1.8? His name is Jesus. Jesus has the keys to death in Hades. But here, when this star falls from heaven to earth, and here going to give authority over the bottomless pit, the key is given to him over this, what's called in Greek, the abusos, the bottomless pit. Jesus said these words, write this down for your notes, Luke 10, 18 through 20. He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. 
Behold, I've given you authority to tread upon serpents, keep this in mind, and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And Satan did fall and fall hard. A prophecy given in Revelation, excuse me, in Isaiah 14, many people believe is about Satan's fall. It says, have you, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, star of the morning, Isaiah 14, 12. Uh, Lucifer later in the book of Revelation will be depicted as taking a third, sweeping a third of the stars with him. The stars are often angels. And so he led a rebellion. And there are many who hold, I do as well, that his final fall, when he's finally kicked out of heaven, when he has no more access, will be in the middle of Daniel's 70th week. Right now, it seems like Satan does have access to heaven. In Job chapter 1, he presents himself before God along with other angels. In Revelation 12, he's depicted as uh, bringing accusations against the, the saints. How often? Day and night he makes his accusations. But he falls. He had a, an original fall, and now there is a fall of this angel. There are many who believe this is Satan. Don't have to be dogmatic. And he, verse 2, Revelation 9, that is the angel, opened the bottomless pit. This is the abusos. The pit is fraar in uh, Greek. And the smoke, when he opened this pit, went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. The air was often held to be the abode of demons. Uh, Satan in Ephesians 2, 2 is called the prince of the power of the air. And so demons were thought often to control that part of the world, if you will. And so notice the bottomless pit is opened up. There's smoke that comes out. The sun and the air are darkened by the smoke of the pit. And he opens this abyss. If you look over to Revelation 20 for a second, this abyss will be seen again, this bottomless pit. Revelation 20, verse 1, and this is something that we're all grateful is going to happen. Revelation 20, verse 1 says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This is in concert with the thousand-year reign of Christ. And threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. Remember, Jesus ran into many demonic possession cases, one of which, in the book of Luke, the demon said, are you going to cast us into the abuso, into the abyss before the time? And they were sent where? Into the pigs, into the swine. And the swine went over the edge, into the abyss, if you will. Kind of a picture of the final place for the demons. And here, the abyss is opened up. In 2 Peter 2.4, if you want to write it down for your notes... It says, for since God did not spare angels when they sin, sin, but cast them into hell. The word for hell is uh, Tartarus there. Many believe it's the deepest abyss of Hades. He cast them into hell and committed them to uh, pits or chains of darkness 
reserved for a judgment. As people look at 2 Peter 2, Jude uh, chapter 1, there's only one chapter, many have come to the conclusion that those who were demonic spirits, at least some of them have been put into this abyss, into this holding compartment, which will be later the place where Satan is for a thousand years. And they've been there. And when this key is given to this angel or Satan himself to open the bottomless pit, when he opens it, these demons come up out of the pit. Those who have been, you know, reserved in chains and so forth are now emerge. To what do they emerge? What is their goal? What are they going to do? Well, notice how the Bible describes them. Out of the smoke came forth locusts. The Greek word is akris, if you're interested, A-K-R. Is um, and we'll talk about what, if these are actual locusts or not. They came forth, came forth locusts upon the earth, and power was given them. So the power is not their own; it's given to them at least for a season, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now I don't know a whole lot about scorpions, but I have been told that you don't want to be stung by a scorpion, because if you are. My understanding is it's one of the most painful things that can happen to you. In fact, I've heard some stories about uh, people being uh, having to deal with a scorpion, and it's been a horrific pain. The book of Exodus uh, tells us about a similar happening. If you go all the way over to the book of Exodus, second book of your Old Testament, take a look at chapter 10. This is the eighth plague that fell upon the land of Egypt. I've been telling you that as we look at the book of Revelation, we can see parallels to the book of Exodus. Here's what happens in the eighth plague, Exodus 10, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all the hail, uh, all that the hail has left. Exodus 10, 13. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt as the, and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all the day and all the night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. They were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again. For they covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. And they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit trees, all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus, nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. And all God's people said, wow. Terry, if you got the picture of the locust back there, um, this is what locusts look like when they descend upon an area. And anybody who's been involved in agriculture or agrarian life knows that when a locust invasion like this comes, go to the next slide, it is kind of a horrific sight. In fact, what happens is the sky almost becomes darkened by the millions upon millions of locusts. And you could have one hit the ground and try to crunch it. But even if you do, you're not going to do any good. Go to the next slide. Uh, you can see just how they can converge on an area and just dominate it. And then finally, and there's not much you can do if you're trying to deal with locusts that descend upon an area. When the Bible's using imagery of the day of the Lord in the book of Joel, and I don't have time to go there tonight, but write this down for your notes. Joel chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, and Joel chapter 2, verses 17 through 27, it draws a parallel between what I believe was a historic happening, go back to Revelation 9, that happened in Israel and, a, and the day of the Lord. 
Day of the Lord imagery is captured, at least in one sense, with a locust-type invasion. But we're going to see that what is released out of this bottomless pit does, is clearly not regular locusts. They, they kind of capture the image, but that's not what is fully going on. They were told, Revelation 9-4, these ones who come out of the bottomless pit, that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God, Revelation 9-4, on their foreheads. Now, we do know that the 144,000 were sealed, and they were from each of the tribes of what? Israel. We do know that when the Exodus plagues took place, God made a distinction between Israel in the land of Goshen and Egypt as a nation. The plagues would come upon Egypt but would not touch the people of Israel. In much the same way, if the 144,000 remain on the earth and are sealed, they are sealed for ownership and protection. They make it through, if you will, the day of the Lord, supernaturally protected, while the rest of the world has to deal with these plagues. They are told what they can and cannot do. They are told that they are not to hurt the grass, which locusts, normal locusts would do. They would eat up everything. Nor any grain thing, nor any tree, which locusts would normally do. But only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, the people who don't have the seal of God are non-Christians. They have, they're going to end up with another seal. They're going to take the mark of the beast, which we'll see later in the book of Revelation. And they're going to, unfortunately, face the day of judgment or the day of wrath. They, these creatures that come out of the abyss, verse 5, were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. Now notice, they are not permitted to kill, but to torment. Very frightening, right? And when they sting an individual, they sting them with the torment of a scorpion. Now, I'll say this to you. We have uh, in the Christian Orthodox camp those who hold a preterist position. In preterism, which means past, they hold that much of what we see in Revelation has already occurred, and it occurred at the fall of Jerusalem. Let me just give you a few of what the things of what they say. One is they say Josephus, who was a historian of the time, says that when the Romans were getting ready uh, and they did this with several sieges to invade Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the people that were in the city kind of went nuts. It seemed like they were almost demonically influenced is what the inference is. I'll let you think about that. And that the final siege from, I think it was April to September was for a period of five months. So some of our preterist friends believe that what's being described here is actually the fall of Jerusalem. I've given you a few things just off the top of my head to consider. One is that means Revelation had to be written before A.D. 70, and I'm not sure you can convince most scholars that that's the case, that it was written before A.D. 72. The book of Revelation was written to seven original churches that were in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, I don't know why this letter, if it's about the fall of Jerusalem, was not sent to the church in Jerusalem. Would you agree? If it's all about the fall of Jerusalem, then I don't know why it's sent to the seven 
historic churches in Asia Minor. I know it's for the wider audience, but I would say, wouldn't the first church on the list be Jerusalem to get out of town, get out of Dodge before this stuff starts happening? And then third, I would argue that it's hard to fit what's happening here into a whole lot of symbolism or symbolic language because sometimes they want to take five months literally and then other times they don't want to take 144,000 literally or a thousand years literally. So they seem to be able to pick and choose what they want to say is literal and not literal. And it leaves a lot to the interpreter. I will tell you this though. The book of Revelation is certainly not an easy book to interpret. And we do have to acknowledge that there is what we call apocalyptic language. But in those days when this occurs, and I think we would argue, uh, those of us who are in this room, I'm going to argue that this is a future happening. Whatever all of this really looks like, in those days men will seek death, verse 6, and will not find it. They will long, the word long there is they will lust, literally, long for death, and death will flee from them, verse 6. Isn't it interesting, the thing that man fears the most, the thing that he lives under constant fear and bondage over, now he seeks and cannot find. In the ultimate irony, now when man wants to die, he cannot die. Now some people who look at this and have read multiple commentaries on the book of Revelation have heard some frightening images like, does this mean that you could shoot yourself in the head and still be alive? Well, how exactly would that work if you blew your brains out? Sorry to be a little bit uh, graphic, but here's the deal. Would you still be walking around alive? Is, is this more that someone would feel a sense of wanting to die, but couldn't bring themselves to it or so forth? I don't know. But if we take this just in the language in which it states, it means that death goes on holiday. People will want to die and not be able to, do, able to. And you know, there are a lot of people who believe that if they commit suicide, they will escape all their problems. But I have news for you. If you commit suicide as a non-Christian, the worst is yet to come. And I'm sorry, but that's just the facts. Because the Bible does not teach that after you breathe your last here, your life is over the Bible says it's appointed to man to die once. And after this, after you die once, comes the judgment. That's Hebrews 9.27. So it does people no good to paint rosy pictures of non-realities that are not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you must be right with God. I'm not making a commentary on, uh, on suicide in terms of, you know, what that determines when someone dies, Christian, non-Christian. That's not where I'm going tonight. I don't believe it's an unforgivable sin, but that's another conversation. I'm talking about an unbeliever. But imagine a person who would want to die, whatever they would attempt to do, and cannot die. And I don't know how you could say that this is in any way symbolic. Now, the appearance of the locust, verse 7, was like, you'll see the word like many times in these uh, verses, was like, so there's a simile here, it was like horses prepared for battle. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a locust that looks like a horse, but that's kind of why our writer started us off with the Nazgul, these weird creatures from J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, because these are like no locusts we've ever seen. They're like horses prepared for battle. 
On their heads, as it were, were crowns like gold. I don't know if that means they were tinfoil. I'm not sure. Their faces were like the faces of men. This is what they looked like. But John's doing the best that he can to describe what they look like. Joel 1.6 says, For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. Joel 1.6. They, the locusts, had hair like the hair of women. Their teeth were like the teeth of lions. What in the world is going on with this particular locust? I mean, come on, man. So I thought of another movie. Terry, if you can help me out from the back. Here's the closest that I can get to give you an image of what this description is like. This is Indiana Jones, the original movie. And if you go to the next slide, this is what happens to these. Uh, what they, they look like beautiful creatures when they first come out of the ark. If you remember, you guys, if you haven't seen this movie, this is must-see movie. Uh, this is, this is a, a wonderful movie. Um, not all theologically correct, but do you remember when they opened the ark, uh, these angel-like creatures come out and the one guy says, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. And then all of a sudden, wee, 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 wee. the music starts and ah, they get ugly quick and people's faces start melting and people's heads start exploding. And I'm not kidding. It's fantastic movie making. And Indiana Jones says to his girlfriend, close your eyes, don't look at it. Ah, ah, ah. Uh, anyway, there you go. They survive. The Nazis are no more. So there you go. If you haven't seen the movie, go watch it later on. Now they had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, verse 9. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. Now, how literal are we to take this language? Some people say, well, maybe this describes an invading army in apocalyptic imagery. And our preterist friends would say, it's the Roman army. And while I can't, uh, they would say, I can't argue for every single uh, piece of this. I think it's just apocalyptic imagery at the fall of Jerusalem. That's what they say. But others who look at the uh, imagery for what it is, look at where they come out of. They come out of where? The bottomless pit. Look at the description of them. I think that many who hold a futurist view would say that these are demons. There's some sort of demonic spirit that is let loose during the day of the Lord. And notice what it goes on to say. They have tails like scorpions, verse 10, and stings. And in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon or Abaddon. And in Greek, he has the name Apollyon or Apollyon. Apollyon. Um, you'll notice in uh, Proverbs 30 verse 27, the Bible says that locusts have no king. Proverbs 30, verse 27, yet they march in ranks. Here, these weird creatures have a king over them. Who is their king? Note it. He is the what? The angel of the abyss. Their king is an angel. The locusts are not literal locusts, nor do they seem to be the Roman army or any other human army for that matter. Their king is an angel. 
And he's the angel of the abyss. And he's come out to lead them, if you will, bent on destruction. 1 Peter 5, 8 says the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking someone to what? To devour. And maybe during this stage of the day of the Lord, he gets his ultimate wish. So his name in both Hebrew, Abaddon, and the Greek form there of Apollyon or Apollyon, both mean destroyer. His name is the destroyer. Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking someone to destroy. That's what he does. He's a destroyer. And so he leads this weird, frightful legion of what appears to be demons. And they are bent on destruction. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Man, right here. Just everybody take a deep breath. Okay, that was, that was just one of the woes. <laughs> the first woe is past. Now the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Some believe this is actually the voice of God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So now these angels who are bound, there are four of them, they're bound at the river Euphrates are going to be loosed. They're going to be released. Um, there is a verse later on in the book of Revelation that talks about the drying up of the Euphrates. We'll get there in a second. But as that did happen in history, uh, the drying up the, of the Euphrates, I believe, if I recollect correctly, it was the Persian army that did that as they descended upon Babylon to destroy Babylon. That was a, a tactic. So, but here, are they, these four angels are there. They've been prepared, verse 15, for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. Notice the meticulous sovereignty of God. It's the hour, the day, the month, and the year. Precise timing. They were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. Now, we haven't seen death come in this trumpet, the fifth trumpet, but now we're going to see man die. Man has experienced torment. He's experienced, can you imagine just the physical and psychological torment of having to deal with this kind of situation? Whatever all the final details of it are, it had to have to be a frightening time. Now these four angels get released and now they are on a killing spree. The number of the armies of the horsemen that are going to come forth from this release was 200 million. If this is a literal number, it cannot be the Roman army, by the way. The Roman army did not field 200 million and was not able to bring those kind of numbers. John says, I heard the number of them. In our own history, though, Mao Zedong uh, did say that there was a Chinese army, an army from China. He boasted that could be 200 million. And this is where Hal Lindsey and other famous prophecy writers of the past said they believed the kings of the earth were China, that they could field an army of 200 million, and this is what it was talking about. But east is not typically east of the U.S. It's east of what? Of Israel. Israel is the center point when you look at these kinds of prophecies. So if you look, think of countries to the east of Israel, you're thinking about the, probably the right countries, which would be Persia or Iran. Uh, you would have Babylon or modern-day Iraq. You would have areas like that. If you keep going up to the north, then you're getting into the area of Russia. And so I heard the number of them, 200 million. I ask you, is that a literal number? 
Is it symbolic? If it is symbolic, what does it mean exactly? It doesn't mean a whole lot of a whole lot of a whole lot. <laughs> or is it 200 million? Again, this is where all the debates come from. Skip over to Revelation 16, verse 12. We have to move quickly because we're going to quickly run out of time. Revelation 16, 12 says these words. The sixth angel poured out, 16, 12, out his bowl. The bowls and the trumpets will match each other. Upon the great river, the Euphrates, its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. And we'll, when we get there, we'll talk about what they do to impact the world, but we'll go back to Revelation 9 to finish up. So here's what we have. We have this release now of more that's going to trouble mankind and kill mankind. This is how I saw 917 in the vision, the horses and those who sat upon them. The riders had breastplates, the color of fire and of hyacinth could be deep blue or reddish black and of brimstone. The heads of the horses are like the heads of lions and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. Now, if you've read books that have been written by prophecy writers who are futurists, some of them have argued that the locusts are helicopters, that the other descriptions of the horses are like tanks, and I would say no tanks. Anyway, never mind. Uh, apparently, that wasn't very good, but uh, yeah. Anyway, tanks or no tanks. And when I was in India, uh, they didn't say H's, so it was tank. You Lord. But anyway, and so there are people who say, oh, well, John wouldn't have known what a helicopter was like. So a dragonfly kind of looks like a helicopter. Maybe a, a locust does too. And maybe these creatures that John is trying to describe with fire and brimstone coming out of tails and mouths and stuff is modern equipment in some sort of battle happening between armies of mankind. Well, Whatever this is, and I'm going to argue that this is much like the locust. It seems to be demonic in nature. A third of mankind, verse 18, was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. Would you note it? A third of mankind. Now, how many people are on the planet right now? Seven billion? Probably close to seven billion. So if the rapture has occurred, let's just take modern numbers how many people get raptured? 144,000. No, just kidding. Just kidding. So let's say, uh, would you say a third of the world's Christians, we hope? Okay, so let's just say for the sake of argument, 2 billion Christians go at the rapture. So let's just say that there's 4 billion people left. A third of 4 billion is over a billion people. Can you imagine... You know, we, we hear of a natural disaster. We hear of a war. We hear of the Mexico earthquake. And when we hear hundreds of people died, when we, when we know that 9-11 killed over 3,000 people, that's, that's a tragedy. Any death is a tragedy. Can you imagine trying to do funerals for over a billion people? Can you imagine what the burials would look like? Can you imagine people reeling and trying to deal with the fallout? I mean, this is staggering the death toll would be absolutely staggering. There'd be nothing ever seen like this. The power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents 
and have heads, and with them they do harm. Now, all of you who are Christians, just say, praise the Lord, because I don't want to meet one of these creatures in a back alley. <laughs> no, no, no. No, thank you. I don't even like dealing with a garden snake. Can I get a witness? I don't like snakes, scorpions, spiders, bears, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. None of them. <laughs> Sobering. Now, you would think at this point, the people left on the planet, let's say that there's a couple billion left, would drop to their knees and say, oh God, I'm so sorry that I ignored you all this time. Keep in mind, these people have had every opportunity to receive the gospel. We'll see an angel in mid-heaven proclaiming the everlasting gospel. The gospel has been preached everywhere. They would not respond. But here's what they do. The rest of mankind, verse 20. Mankind, by the way, the rest of mankind is anthropos, anthropos. It's where we get the the idea of anthropology, the rest of mankind. It doesn't say the rest of Israel. It doesn't say the rest of the people who were in Jerusalem at the fall at AD 70. It says, what does your, your Bible say? The rest of mankind, anthropos, the rest of humanity worldwide who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as to not worship what? Demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And I would add in my own notes and cannot save. They wouldn't stop worshiping demons. And now guess what they got? This is the ultimate irony. They got to meet some demons face to face. Oh, you wanted to worship them? Oh, did, did you think that there was a, a special black arts that you could practice in the occult where you wanted to get in touch with the spirit guides and the spirit beings because it's exciting what kind of power they could bring to you? Did you think that they would, they would bring you to green pastures and still waters? I don't think so. You don't want to mess with that dark side because you have no idea what you're messing with. And when they get a look at a demon face to face, it isn't pretty. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses says, they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods, small g, whom they had not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Over and over again, Israel would not repent of idolatry Paul says, when you worship an idol, if there's anything behind an idol, it's what? It's a demon. It's demonic in nature. There is a spiritual battle going on. And so they wouldn't repent. End of chapter 9, verse 21. They did not repent of their murders. 21. Their sorceries. By the way, sorceries is a word originally that is pharmakeos or chaos, where we get pharmacist. It has a connection to drug use, by the way, because many ancients would take some sort of drug that they thought got him in touch with the gods, with a small g. They wouldn't repent of their murders, their sorceries, their immorality. I don't even need to talk to you about immorality tonight because you all know what's going on there 
nor of their thefts. They wouldn't repent of any of it. And the Bible says, repent and believe the good news. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Bible says that Paul went about preaching repentance and faith in the book of Acts. What does repentance simply mean? It means to turn to God, stop trying to do it in your own way. And even here, as these people face all of this stuff, the Bible says they would not repent. That's why I would say to you that once the day of the Lord begins, there's going to be, you won't see any stories of repentance. There are none. That window closes at the seventh seal. So here's a consideration. Were the plagues of the Exodus literal? Would you, would you say yes? yes? I would. So take that connection and put it to the book of Revelation and just start to maybe add that to as you wrestle with the book. I want to close with what happened in J.R. Tolkien's novel. Do you know who ended up in the battle for, for Middle Earth? Do you know how it ended? Do you know who actually overcame evil? The one who dealt with the Nazgul and these weird you know, kings that were riding them, was a woman. Her father was a king. He got crushed by his horse and he lay dying. And this weird dragon creature was going to come and feast on his flesh. And basically the king said, don't stand between the animal and, you know, what it wants to eat. No man can kill me. And she took off her helmet and said, I am no man. I think her name is Eowyn, Eowyn, something like that. And remember, she deals the death blow to this king. It was a woman. And do you remember who actually, when the story is all over, were the heroes of the story? A couple of little hobbits who hung in there and not without a lot of pain and misery and dealt with the ring of power. Two little short guys and a woman. <laughs> See, sometimes we think, what can I do? We read a chapter like Revelation 9 and we go, I don't know what the application is for me. What part do I have in the grand story of salvation? What can I do? You know, the hobbits looked at one another when the story was unfolding and they said, what can we do? We're going to go back to the Shire. What can we do against such forces of evil? And one of the hobbits looks at the other and says, there may not be a Shire to go back to. We're here. This is what we've been called to do. To do our part in the grand story of salvation. That's what Tolkien's novel was about. Oh, the forces of evil are dark and they look menacing and powerful, but don't underestimate what God can do with your life. Just say, here I am, Lord. Send me. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you need prayer tonight or if you opened your heart to the Lord...